Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and this is The Bible Teachers. I'm having a series of conversations with Pastor Peter Watts on the question, Is God for Real? This is the sixth program in the series. Last week, we looked at the evidence for the historicity of Jesus and his divinity. In this program, we're addressing the question, Resurrection, Fact or Fantasy? In the next program, the seventh and final program in the series, Peter will tell us about his journey from unbelief to belief in the United Kingdom and how he came to be a pastor in Australia. Hello, Peter. Welcome again. Thank you, Barry. It's good to be here. I feel a bit sad that our conversations in this series are drawing to a close. It's been a really enjoyable time talking with you. No, I've certainly enjoyed uh, talking with you and um, I guess reviewing some of this material. It's been uh, really good for me too. I've found that it's uh, bolstered my own faith and I look forward to this, uh, this one today particularly. Now we're talking about the resurrection. Why is this topic so important to the question, is God for real? I guess this question probably is where the rubber meets the road. Um, you know, we've talked about whether or not the Bible is uh, trustworthy. Is it historically true? Can we believe what, what's written there? Um, we've talked about uh, philosophical reasons as to why there might be a God or, or not or what, what the implications are of, of there being a God or not in the universe. Um, but this one, it, with the resurrection, we're talking about an historic event uh, in history, in a specific place, number of people there, witnesses to what did or didn't happen. Uh, and it's kind of really where the rubber meets the road. I mean, if the resurrection is not true, then really uh, we're going to read a couple of statements, but uh, Christianity stands or unfalls on the resurrection of Jesus. Um, the, the teachings that Jesus uh, gave, the claims that he made about who he was that we've spoken about before, uh, they all rest on this fact or otherwise, the fact or fantasy of the resurrection. Was Jesus who he claimed to be? Was Jesus who his followers claimed him to be? Or was he uh, an imposter? Was he just a, uh, a wise carpenter's son? Who was he, in fact? And uh, the resurrection uh, is powerful evidence. If, in fact, it's true, it's powerful evidence for the claims that were made about Jesus being the Son of God. Is there any evidence that Jesus actually died on the cross? Well, there is. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. I just want to refer to uh, a survey that was conducted by uh, a Melbourne newspaper, The Age, and this was done back in 2009, and they probably um, uh, have conducted other surveys since. But it was interesting to note uh, in that survey... Uh, it was around the resurrection weekend, you know, uh, in terms of uh, Easter time, they were doing a, a survey of people finding out who believed that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And surprisingly to me, at least, uh, 45% of those who responded believe he rose from the dead. And uh, I was surprised at that because I was su surprised it was a higher number than I thought probably it would be. Uh, 45% of people believed he rose from the dead, 42% believe he had divine powers, 11% don't believe he even existed, uh, which, of course, um, we've talked a little bit about on previous programs in regard to the histor historicity of the figure of Jesus Christ, uh, that he uh, undoubtedly did uh, live. And so uh, it's interesting that um, you still have people who 
you know, don't believe he even existed. But 45% of people believe he rose from the dead, and I think that's quite a quite a high number given that we um, perceive sometimes that Australia is quite a secular society. And so um, you have a significant number of people who do believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and for good reason. Um, in terms of the importance of the resurrection, uh, David Marshall writes uh, in his book called The Essential Jesus, uh, he says the whole case for Christianity rests on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Without it, Christianity would have been stillborn, for a living faith cannot outlive a dead saviour. And as we look at some of the material, we're going to look at the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, and we'll come to that uh, and explain that a little bit more, but when Jesus died on the cross, his his followers were basically scattered. Uh, they were afraid for their own lives. They were afraid for what was going to happen to Jesus. Um, they weren't in any mood to go and preach a gospel to all the world. Uh, and so uh, it is the resurrection, according to them, according to their witness, according to what they have written for us in the New Testament, it is the resurrection that motivated them to share the fact that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And they didn't seem to have any trust in the resurrection initially either, did they? No, and we'll look at that in terms of the doubts. We, you know, we remember everybody's probably heard of doubting Thomas. Um, and, but we'll look at some of the others because uh, every one of those who saw Jesus alive after the resurrection was not expecting to do so. Uh, and that's interesting in itself. And we'll look at that. Um, Philip Schaff, who's an historian, he also talks about the resurrection. He says the Christian church rests on the resurrection of its founder. Uh, without this fact, the church could never have been born. Or if born, it would soon have died a natural death. The miracle of the resurrection and the existence of Christianity are so closely connected that they must stand or fall together. And uh, so you've got a couple of his. I just wanted to include those, a couple of uh, historians looking at the resurrection, looking at Christianity, looking at the church itself. Where did the church come from? Where did the Christ, Christian church begin? What did it begin with in terms of its belief? Um, and beyond that, even the Bible itself, when I was speaking earlier about this is where the rubber meets the road, you know, you really don't have Christianity without the resurrection. And that's not just me saying, it's not even just the historians saying that. Paul, who wrote half the books in the New Testament, Paul makes this case himself um, in the book of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I just want to read what he says there in verses 16 to 19. He says, For if the dead do not rise... He's talking about the general resurrection. People in the church at Corinth are wondering, when we die, what happens? You know, are we going to live again? Is there a bodily resurrection? Is there life after death? They're concerned about this, and when will that happen? And Paul says, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And notice this, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. It's worthless. It's hopeless. <laughs> You know, he says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. That's a remarkable statement to make from someone who wrote more of the uh, New Testament than anybody else. 
Uh, they're, you know, they're making the case for Christianity. They're trying to persuade people that uh, Jesus is worthy of worship and worthy of following. And he is saying that if if only in this life we have hope in Christ, then we, have, we are of all men most pitiable. So he's really staking a strong uh, claim to the resurrection. But more than that, he's putting a great deal of emphasis, a great deal of importance on the resurrection. If you don't have the resurrection, our faith is futile. Well, let's go back to that uh, evidence that Jesus actually died on the cross. Sure. There are two questions. And uh, first of all, in order to have a resurrection, you have to have a death. You know, did Jesus actually die on the cross? And we want to examine that. Um, You know, was he really dead? Um, Maybe he was asleep. (laughs) Maybe he fainted. Maybe he was wounded. He could have been knocked out. Did Jesus actually die? Uh, because in order to have a resurrection, you have to have a death. Uh, so did Jesus die on the cross? And then, of course, the other question, was Jesus seen alive after the cross? If Jesus died on the cross, was he seen alive afterwards by the resurrection? So I think this is important to point out because some people may say, well, you know, yes, I do believe in the resurrection of Jesus or no, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Um was it a case of the disciples just coming together and say, okay, he's died, we believe that he's resurrected, let's just go out and tell everybody that he's resurrected. Jesus has risen from the dead. Or was it in fact their eyewitness accounts of him alive after the resurrection, after the cross, uh, that they were sharing? So it wasn't just an idea, well, he has risen from the dead. This was an experience that they had had. It was a dangerous idea for them, wasn't it? Very dangerous idea, of course. Um, you know, of the 12 apostles, uh, you know, we know that phrase, the 12 apostles. Of course, Judas was one of them. He um, betrayed Jesus and went and hung himself. Of the other 11, only John lived to an old age and died a natural death. Everybody else was martyred for their faith. So they died for what they were sharing. They died for what they believed in, and they believed in it so strongly that you didn't have to pay them to tell somebody. In fact, you couldn't pay them not to tell somebody, and they were prepared to go to their graves rather than deny something that they knew, that they'd seen with their own eyes, they'd touched with their own hands, they'd heard with their own ears. Uh, This was something they had literally experienced, and not a few, not one or two individuals here or there, a large body of people as we'll we'll come to find out. So they were pretty clear about the implications of the resurrection. Well, it's a massive thing. I mean, if you and I, uh, the reason that the resurrection is such uh, an incredible uh, fact of history, the reason it's such an incredible story within the whole Gospels is because we don't see that happen every day. Death to us is normal. We don't like to talk about it, but we know that people get old, they die. Sometimes people die in tragic circumstances. But death is something we see every day on the news, you know, and and more than that, we experience in our own personal lives when we have the loss of loved ones. So death is not extraordinary. Resurrection is extraordinary. We do not see people being resurrected every day here and there and and in different places. So when we hear about a resurrection, we immediately have to ask, is this this feasible? But let's go back to the first question. Is, did Jesus die on the cross? We have to have a death before we have a resurrection. Now, of course, anybody who is living in the first century, if they are a regular human being, 
they're going to be dead by now anyway of something. <laughs> they're not still going to be alive today. But, of course, the, uh, the evidence is, the record is that Jesus died on the cross. And we're just going to go back to uh, some extra biblical material again here. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, this is evidence that exists outside of the Bible, Okay, so we're not just relying upon Scripture to tell us the details of Jesus' life and death and so forth. We're actually uh, looking at other secular historians at the time who are recording or remarking upon these events. And that helps us to be able to corroborate the evidence and say, you know what, this is uh, rational, it's reasonable, we can see that these things actually occurred. So we're we're looking at Tacitus again, and we mentioned this uh, before when we were talking about um, who Jesus was and whether he really existed. Um, Tacitus writes... um, Around 109 AD, he writes, Nero, talking about the emperor Nero, fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Now, here he's talking about the fire of Rome, and he's talking about Nero fastening the guilt of the fire of Rome upon Christians. And he says, Christus from whom the name had its origin, in other words, this group of people called Christians, they had their origin from a man named Christus, or we would say Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. There's a number of interesting details in this um, historian's account, in Tacitus' account. He mentions that there are Christians around at his time, and he wrote this around 109 AD. So there are Christians around. He mentions that they got their name from one called Christ or Christus, Um, And he says that this Christus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius. So he's given us a time frame. Tiberius Caesar is ruling, and it's at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And, of course, these are all details confirmed and affirmed by the four Gospels. Okay, so uh, this is an extra-biblical source claiming that uh, he suffered the extreme penalty, which... um, most historians have identified as crucifixion. And when we talk about extreme penalty, you see, crucifixion wasn't just about putting somebody to death. You could do that by beheading them. Um, People were beheaded in Bible times as well. There are many ways to put somebody to death. Um, But Jesus was crucified, and of course, uh, that involved actual punishment and torture and torment. Uh, The idea was that you would die in an excruciating manner. In fact, the word excruciatus comes from out of the cross is what it means, pain from out of the cross. When we talk about being in excruciating pain, what we're really saying is, is pain from out of the cross. That, that's how uh, deep that pain was. But uh, So when it talks about suffering the extreme penalty, that would have been crucifixion. Uh, another source um, that we have is a, a letter written by a Syrian Stoic held in a Roman prison, and uh, it, it's um, believed that this letter was rate, dated around, the original writing of this letter would have been around AD 73, um, and it's called Marabar Sarapian, uh, where he, um, the writer encourages his son to pursue wisdom. And it says, What advantage did the Athenians gain from murdering Socrates? Famine and plague came upon them as a punishment for their crime. What advantage did the men of Samos gain from burying, sorry, burning Pythagoras? And then it says, 
in a moment, uh, in a moment, their land was covered with sand. And the last one says, "What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king?" Uh, and that's an interesting statement because. Um, Many believe that this is a reference to Jesus, where the Jews executed their wise king. And again, when you read the gospel accounts, it is the Jews who are calling, or the Jewish leadership at the time, who are calling upon the Roman governor Pilate to execute, crucify Jesus. Um, and so we have uh, a little bit of extra biblical material, as well as the other material that we've covered in previous passages. One I mentioned before was uh, some graffiti that is circa around 200 AD. And, uh, you know, we think we tend to think of graffiti as some kind of modern uh, phenomena, you know, and we see it scrawled on trains or, you know, uh, on walls and things like that. But graffiti's been around for a long time. And back in uh, around the AD 200, um, there's been some graffiti carved in plaster. Uh, it was discovered in 1857 on the Palatine Hill in Rome, and uh, it was, it's, it's basically a carving of uh, a man who is uh, worshipping a, uh, it's like a human figure that's on a cross, but it's got a donkey's head. And this is written in mockery uh, of someone. And the um, inscription reads, Alexamenos worships his God. And the point being, you have, a graffiti there of somebody worshipping somebody who's dying on a cross. Uh, and the only record that I know of of anybody who has been worshipped who died on a cross is, of course, Jesus Christ. And so this, again, um, is sort of evidence that someone who died on a cross was worshipped as a god. Um, and so it's just interesting uh, that you have these little pieces of extra-biblical evidence that are outside of the Bible, but, but actually corroborate what is written within the Bible. Um, of course, when we come to the Gospels, when we come to the New Testament, the New Testament, you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are really four accounts of the life of Jesus. And if you read the last three or four chapters of each of those four Gospels, you have the account of Jesus' trial his um, death on the cross, and then his resurrection. And so um, it's interesting when you read the four Gospels, because they're given as four different accounts of Jesus' life, they're told from the perspective of the writer. And so there are differences in those Gospels. In other words, one writer will choose to record a particular story or parable that Jesus told or an event in Jesus' life. Another writer might record a different story or a different event in Jesus' life. Uh, but they're not contradictory accounts. Rather, they are complementary accounts. So you could be telling the same event from a different perspective. Correct. I the, mean, account, we, the account seems different, but it's yeah. really the same. And the, the um, example that we've used uh, before uh, is if you have... You know, perhaps you have a busy crossroads. A, there's a car accident in the middle of that crossroads, and you could imagine maybe four eyewitnesses standing on the corners, the different corners of that event, uh, and they're each asked to give a statement. Could you please give us a, a, a statement, a testimony of what you saw? And the four Gospels in many ways are, are that. Uh, they're giving a statement, a testimony of what took place, and, of course, 
those perspectives might be slightly different because of where you're looking from, but they are complementary, they're not contradictory. And so if you look at the last three or four chapters of each of the Gospels, you have the accounts of the trial, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and then, of course, there's a little uh, piece that we'll look at, too, in First Corinthians, where Paul talks about uh, people who saw Jesus after the resurrection. So in the gospel accounts, we're not going to read every verse, you know, because there's a lot of material in those four gospels, but we'll generally move through what is revealed in those gospels. So you have Jesus who is tried, he's convicted, um, even though it was interesting, Pontius Pilate says, I find no fault in him. So Pilate, who's the governor, the Roman governor, He's basically the authority in this area of the Roman Empire, which is Palestine. And he's saying, look, I can't find anything wrong with this man, Jesus. He's done nothing deserving of death from a Roman point of view. And, of course, the Jews, it was the Jews who claimed, the Jewish leadership at least, who called for his crucifixion because they accused him of blasphemy, because he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed divinity for himself. And, uh, of course, Pilate, you know, he could couldn't care less about that religious aspect. And um, and so he was going to let him go. But the Jews claimed uh, that he needed to be crucified. Pilate allowed, he agreed to their demand, really. He didn't want to crucify Jesus, but because the crowd demanded it, he agreed to their demand. So Jesus was crucified on a cross. He was crucified between two other thieves, the Bible tells us. Um, so he was crucified amongst other criminals. Um, and he hung on the cross for about three hours. Uh, then he died on the cross. Um, there are a number of statements that are attributed to Jesus while he was on the cross that he made, uh, and at the end he's attributed as saying, into thy spirit I commit, you know, into thy hands I commit my spirit to his father. He dies on the cross. Uh, the soldiers around him, uh, want to make sure that he is dead, and they they put a spear in his in his side, and blood and water come out. They actually uh, tell Pilate that Jesus has died on the cross, and Pilate is ma is amazed that Jesus has died so quickly. I mentioned before that crucifixion was not simply a method of execution, but was also a method of torture, and you were meant to hang there for hours and sometimes days before you would die. Uh, so it was designed to have you die in the most excruciating fashion. Is there any evidence that anyone ever survived crucifixion? No, there isn't. It's uh, highly unlikely, isn't it? Well, exactly. I mean, if if you're the Romans, I mean, you're, you're, the nails were put through his uh, hands, his wrists. The, a nail was put through his feet. He had a crown of thorns placed upon his head. Uh, it was incredibly difficult to breathe. It took a great effort to breathe when you were on, on the cross. Um, you would have seen people deteriorating on the cross. Uh, and when they lost consciousness, it would you would have imagined that they were dead. And, and so in order to make sure that Jesus was dead, they plunged a spear into his side uh, and to confirm, to affirm that he was dead. Uh, and then they reported that to Pilate. You know, these are hardened Roman soldiers. Um, so it's unlikely 
that he would have been alive when he was taken down from it, that it's, cross. It's not feasible. It's not feasible. In fact, none of the, you know, those believers that were around the cross who actually took his body down from the cross, there was a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, and we'll come to him later. He uh, was a wealthy man. He had a tomb that had not been used, a new tomb, and he went to Pilate asking if he could have the body and place it in that tomb. So those who were followers of Jesus, those who believed in him, those who were there around the cross for him, and there were only a few of, few of them that were there because most of the disciples had scattered, but those that were there who were Jesus' followers did not believe he was alive. They believed he was dead. And, of course, they wanted him to be alive. You know, They, they weren't going to bury him if they thought he was alive. Uh, so they were absolutely convinced uh, that he was indeed death. And with all of those wounds, it's just not feasible that he would have remained alive. The, certainly the Romans were not going to allow them to take down his body and carry it away had he been alive. Particularly because of the uh, political implications for the Romans. When they understood that this was something really serious around Jewish politics, and uh, they weren't going to allow this to fester for too long. So the death of Jesus, really, I think we can trust it, given even just the political circumstances surrounding his death. And we just uh, spoke before about those extra-biblical sources that say that this man Christus was put to death at the time of Tiberius Caesar under the hand of Pontius Pilate. So we have an extra-biblical source that tells us that Jesus was put to death under Pontius Pilate. Uh, so this is not just relying on the biblical evidence. He was put to death by Pontius Pilate. We have uh, a great deal of historical evidence to suggest that Jesus was put to death by Pontius Pilate. And it would seem unlikely that Christianity would have made very much impact if he hadn't died and been resurrected. Well, we mentioned that um, Philip uh, Schaff, that historian's comment where he says... Uh, a living faith cannot out, outlive a dead saviour. Uh, think about what Jesus is offering. You know, probably the one of the most famous verses in the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So one of the things that Jesus is promising is that this isn't all there is. This life is not all there is. There is a life to be lived Throughout eternity, this isn't, you know, death is not the end. And one of the things that really brought this issue to a head was the fact that he'd raised people from the dead himself. Correct. And that's important because, of course, the biblical record says that Jesus was not the first person to be raised from the dead. Uh, far from it. In fact, there are people in the Old Testament that were raised from the dead. Moses, of course, died. Um, according to Jewish tradition, he was raised from the dead. And we can believe that because he actually appears in the New Testament to Jesus. Uh, so th th there is evidence that he was alive after his death. Um, then, of course, you've got stories in the uh, prophets, uh, prophet Elijah and prophet Elisha, where they have um, two boys uh, that would that died and were risen again. You but it wasn't. But it wasn't a common thing, was it? It was not a common thing. That's important to note. It wasn't a common thing, even possible. in the life of Jesus. The you know you had uh, three that come to mind: Jairus's daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and then Lazarus, 
which most people remember, you know, we, we still use that term when we're talking about the resurrection of political careers. We say he's like Lazarus, he's come back from the dead. And of course, that's where that story comes from. So Jesus had, yes, himself raised others from the dead uh, within his ministry. And here he dies on the cross. And you can imagine why the disciples were so dismayed at the death of Jesus because here's someone who had fed 5,000 people, he'd walked on water, he'd healed the sick and he'd even raised the dead. How was it possible that this man was dead? You know, if, if Jesus was who he claimed to be. And that's what really shook their faith, wasn't it? It shook their faith, absolutely. And so he was taken down from the cross. There were some women there. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus. There was Mary Magdalene. Others were there. Joseph of Arimathea was there. And they put him in Joseph's tomb. And uh, it says they sealed the tomb. And in fact, they they rolled a stone across the tomb. Uh, They used to have these tombs that were kind of cut into the rock like a cave almost. And they would have... A, a rolling stone, a round stone that they would roll across the face of that tomb to, to you know, um, seal that tomb. Further to that, the biblical record teaches us that um, the Jews, and this is fascinating in itself, the Jews went to Pontius Pilate after Jesus had been placed in the tomb and they said, can we have some guards, please? Can we have some Roman guards stand guard over that tomb to make sure that nobody comes and steals the body away. Because the uh, Jewish leadership actually say, because during his life he made claims that he would rise again. And we don't want anybody coming to the tomb, stealing his body away and saying, he's risen, he's risen. So can we have some guards who will seal the tomb, stand guard around the tomb to ensure that nobody comes and steals the body. And Pilate grants them that request and a guard is placed around the tomb. So then we come to Sunday morning. You know, most people, uh, Easter time, we have the tradition of Easter where, you know, we call it Good Friday. That's the day on which Jesus was crucified. He was crucified on a Friday. Saturday was the day after that. He was uh, in the tomb throughout that day. Sunday morning is the time that the Bible uh, declares that Jesus rose from the dead. And, of course, you have Easter Sunday where a lot of people uh, commemorate that event. And so uh, in the Bible, all four Gospels uh, record this, that early in the morning uh, on the first day of the week on Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. Um, I just want to... recall that a couple of places where Jesus predicted that he would not only die, but he would rise again because uh, the, the Jewish leadership had said that. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, here's one of those instances. Uh, it says, And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, I just need to mention that in the Jewish reckoning of time, he died on Friday, 
He remained in the tomb on Saturday. He rose on Sunday. And because he was dead for part of Friday and Saturday and part of Sunday, they would account that as three days because that's their reckoning of time. It's not our reckoning of time, but that's the way they reckon time. And so when it says after three days he will rise again, that's what they meant. So that was one um, mention of him dying and rising again, that he predicted this himself in Mark 8:31, another passage we could read is John 2, uh, John chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So though Jesus had predicted the fact that he will die and rise again, the disciples really didn't understand that until after his resurrection. Um, So That was because their, their thoughts about Jesus were being filtered by these ideas that somehow Jesus was going to set up a a literal kingdom here, a temporal kingdom here on earth. The Jews... uh, believing themselves to be God's special people, uh, believed that when the Messiah came that he would defeat their enemies uh, in a military fashion. That the, the, you know, the Romans who were oppressing them, they were occupying Palestine. Um, they weren't a free people in the truest sense. And so uh, they believed that a Messiah figure would come and overthrow the Romans. Now, of course, Jesus', uh, Jesus message was... Uh, to love your neighbour and to love your enemies. And Jesus even went out of his way in his ministry to minister to Romans as well as others. Um, and so it was challenging for them, I think, that here was a, the Messiah who was not only wanting to save the Jews but wanting to save everybody. He was wanting to bring peace to every individual, not just the Jews. Um, so Jesus is placed in the tomb. A Roman guard is there to prevent anybody from tampering with the tomb once it had been sealed. And then, of course, we mentioned that Sunday morning we have these resurrection appearances. And uh, again, you'll find this at the end of each of the Gospels, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20. And then another passage that we could talk about is 1 Corinthians 15, which we will talk about. And so Uh, we've talked about the first question, which is, did Jesus really die? And uh, there is no record of anyone surviving crucifixion. Uh, This was not meant to be, well, we'll put you there for a while, we want you to suffer, but then we're going to take you down and, you know, we'll put you back in prison or we'll put you back in shackles or we'll put you back on the cross in a few days' time. Jesus was dead, Uh, That's why they allowed him to be taken away for burial. You don't allow people to be taken away for burial unless they're dead. Mm. Uh, Jesus was dead. And, of course, even his injuries were horrific. Um, And we'll talk about some of the secular explanations for the resurrection, uh, perhaps in the second part of this. We'll go to a break now, and when we come back, I'll be talking with Peter about the people who who saw Jesus after the resurrection and also the secular theories that have been proposed to account for the testimony concerning the resurrection. 
If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3abn Australia, all one word.org.au Our postal address is 3abn Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. You're listening to The Bible Teachers. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and I'm speaking with Pastor Peter Watts on the question, resurrection, fact or fantasy. In the first part of the program, we looked at whether Jesus actually died on the cross and the evidence seems to point uh, unmistakably to the fact that he did. In this part of the program, we're actually going to look at who saw Jesus after the resurrection and where they saw him. Peter, who, who did see Jesus after the resurrection? Well, of course, uh, the New Testament records many people seeing him. And in fact, uh, many of those who did see him alive are those who wrote in the New Testament. They're eyewitnesses to the fact of Jesus, and this is why they are writing. Um, you know, we talked about before that uh, he had died, um, and of course we it's important to you know go over that evidence that he, he was dead, because in order to have a resurrection you have to have a death. Of course, the fact that Jesus died is not so remarkable. Everybody, when they get to the end of their life in this world, People die. People die every day. So death is not so remarkable. The idea that Jesus died, it's kind of interesting that we have to prove that Jesus died in order that he resurrected. Uh, Death is not so remarkable, unfortunately. Resurrection is. And so, um, yes, there are many that uh, recall seeing Jesus alive. And we're not talking a handful. We're not talking dozens. We're talking hundreds. And we'll look at that. The main... um, Records in regard to the resurrection, you'll find, as I said before, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John t- uh, 20, and then uh, we'll also look at a passage in 1 Corinthians. The Gospels record that Jesus uh, rose early in the morning on the first day of the week. It says an angel actually came down, first day of the week being Sunday, an angel came down. Uh, it says that Roman soldiers that were there guarding the tomb at the appearance of this angel fell down like dead men that's what it says and then the angel rolled away the stone from the tomb just a point on that um, some of these stones that were rolled across the face of the tomb were really heavy like two and a half tons Uh, I've taken some pictures in uh, Israel of some of the, the rolling stones that have been over these tombs And so it was no small thing to move the stone. In fact, in one of the accounts, when some of the women come to the tomb to finish the work that they didn't have time to to finish on Friday evening, they come back to the tomb to finish the job of of anointing his body. 
uh, one of the women says, who's going to move or move the stone for us? Because it's so heavy, they, these women couldn't move that stone. So the story, uh, the account given in the Bible is that an angel comes down, moves the stone away, and then uh, we have, like I said, the uh, soldiers falling down as dead men uh, that then rush off into the city, into Jerusalem, to tell them what happened. Uh, you have Mary and some of the other women Mary Magdalene and some of the other women coming to the tomb to finish anointing Jesus' body. You then have uh, a situation where Mary finds the tomb empty. She goes outside of the tomb. She sees a figure but assumes it's the gardener and says, where have you taken his body? She assumes somebody's taken the body of Jesus away. She's not there expecting to see Jesus. She's there to finish anointing his body because he is dead. But then this figure that she believes to be the gardener speaks to her, calls her name, and in calling her name, she recognizes that it's Jesus, and she immediately reaches out to grab him because she's overwhelmed by the fact that this is Jesus and he's alive. Uh, He says, do not detain me. I've not yet ascended to my father. And she goes back to tell the disciples. When the disciples, so Mary Magdalene is the first person to see Jesus alive. We're going to come back to that point. I'm just going to run through the record of, of the accounts. And then we're going to talk about the significance of some of those accounts. So Mary is the first person to see Jesus alive after the resurrection. And we'll come back to why that's significant. She goes and tells the other disciples. They don't know what to make of her remarks. Two of them run down to the tomb to find out what happened. They find it empty. They come back and tell the disciples. There are two other disciples walking on the road from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. They're walking and talking about the events of that weekend. Jesus actually walks up behind them and joins them. But he withholds his appearance from them so they don't know it's him. And he's saying, what are you talking about? Oh, well, we're talking about what happened with Jesus and the crucifixion. And now he's died. And some people have said that he's alive, but we don't know what to make of that. And and then Jesus reveals himself to them. And they're overjoyed that they have now met Jesus face to face. And they rush back to Jerusalem to tell the others. Then a Jesus appears in the upper room to the disciples for the first time. And all the disciples there, or most of the disciples there, see him alive. One of them that was not there is Thomas. And most people remember, uh, he's always been known as Doubting Thomas. Because Thomas arrives in the room, Jesus has now gone. The other disciples said, we've seen Jesus alive, he was here. And Thomas says, look, I'm not going to believe unless I see it with my own eyes unless I touch him myself. A week later, Jesus appears again and Thomas is there. And Thomas says, now I believe. And he calls Jesus my Lord and my God. So here's another person who didn't believe and now believes. Then, of course, you've got Paul. And we mentioned that Paul wrote half the books in the New Testament. Paul was not a follower of Jesus during the time of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Paul's job before he becomes a converted Christian is persecuting Christians. (laughs) That's that's what he's 
work is. That's what he's going to do. He's uh, People remember maybe the road to Damascus where Saul, who becomes Paul, he has this dramatic experience where he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears to him some years after the resurrection and the crucifixion. He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he becomes a believer and a follower because of a personal experience of meeting Jesus. Uh, and then he goes on to explain that there were 500 people at one time that saw Jesus alive during that resurrection period before Jesus ascends to heaven. And so you've got a number of accounts of people seeing Jesus alive after the resurrection and in every case, none of them were expecting to see Jesus alive. That's the, the important thing. You think of, uh, you know, the women that went to the tomb didn't go there to see the resurrection. They, they went to finish anointing his body. Peter and John rushed down to the tomb because they were unsure about whether they believed what Mary had said. Uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus weren't expecting to see Jesus weren't sure what to make of the women's claims that he had risen from the dead. The disciples in the upper room weren't expecting to see Jesus. Thomas didn't expect to see Jesus. Paul didn't expect to see Jesus alive and certainly the other disciples. So it's almost as though all the people that saw Jesus alive after the resurrection and testified to the fact that he was alive after the resurrection all began as doubters. They all began as doubters. They all doubted the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead, even though he had um, predicted that he would rise from the dead. To me, one of the most powerful evidences is the 500. Absolutely. I mean, I imagine you could get a small number of people to collude about a story, but to get 500 people to collude and to maintain that position for decades? See, if you and I, uh, if we were making this up, we would probably write it differently. We certainly wouldn't have the disciples unbelieving. We would have them believing and expectant, waiting for the Messiah to rise because he'd promised that he would rise. And so you would say we want to, um, you know, affirm the, these guys' faith in Jesus by saying, yes, they believed and they were waiting for the resurrection. But none of them were expecting the resurrection. They didn't believe. And this, to me, has a ring of truth about it. Uh, because even when we talk today to people about the fact of Jesus rising from the dead, if, they, if they're not already Christians, they don't already believe, there's a scepticism about that. And I think that's understandable because the resurrection is not a normal event. It's not an everyday event. We don't see people being resurrected here, there and everywhere around the world. We but just, if it happened, it changes everything, doesn't it? If it happened, it would be the most remarkable story to ever be told. And this is why uh, when you understand the evidence that exists for the resurrection and you understand the, the reality of the resurrection, of course you want to tell people about it because it's the most remarkable story ever. Um, I want to come to that 500 that you spoke about. Paul is writing. He's writing to a church that he himself planted at Corinth which is in Greece, it's in southern Greece. And Paul is writing this letter. He's writing a letter to the church at Corinth. He's writing this letter around AD 56. So this is some 25 years 
after the resurrection. Right, 25 years after the resurrection, Paul's writing a letter to encourage the church at Corinth. Notice what he, he writes here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 6. He says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now that phrase that Paul has just uh, written out there, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Scholars believe that that predates Paul. In other words, he's saying this, I'm delivering to you what I received. Paul was not present at the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He was not a follower of Jesus at that time. He became a follower a few years later. But so he's saying, I delivered, sorry, I received from the other disciples the account of what happened with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Then, of course, I met Jesus myself on the road to Damascus. And then I'm delivering it to you, new believers, all right, this idea that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Then he goes on to say, and that he, Jesus, was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve, the other disciples, the other apostles. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep, some have passed away in the, in the pre previous 25 years since that resurrection. But he says, of whom the greater part remain. So more than half of that 500 people who saw him at once, in other words, they saw him at the same time. There's a great group of people here that Jesus is appearing to after the resurrection. Now, like you said, you might get a handful, you might be able to find a handful of people that you could persuade to tell a story that, but there'd have to be some motive in doing that. You'd have to have some kind of reward for making up a story, agreeing to keep it, and then keeping it through decades of hardship and persecution. There was no multi-million dollar book deal that they were doing this for. You know, we'll offer you a million dollars, you write this story out. No. Uh, they wrote it out under great persecution. If Paul was just trying to spin a yarn, this would have been um, a bit counterintuitive because he was losing a career, an honoured position in the nation, to put himself in the way of possible death, danger, and uh, disregard by the by the Jews uh, for nothing. If this was just a... He, he would have no credibility. If, if what Paul is writing here was not in fact true... He would have no... Nobody would regard him as credible. If he's but it wouldn't writing, make sense either, would it? It wouldn't why make would a, sense. Why would a man give up his career, an honoured position in the nation, for something that a he fable. knows for to a be fable. untrue? Absolutely. Well, first of all, of course, that goes back to, did, you know, did Paul really have that road to Damascus appearance? And like we say, the dramatic transformation of his life from someone who is persecuting Christians to actually becoming one of their most prominent voices. Something dramatic has to happen there. And his account of what happened was he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. So that was a life-changing episode in his life. 
Then, of course, he's now recounting the evidence that he has received from the other disciples, that Jesus not only appeared to Mary Magdalene, he not only appeared to the uh, apostles in the upper room, he appeared to over 500 people at the same time. Many of whom were still alive when Paul Paul is writing. Correct. And this is his point. This is really, uh, you see, we mentioned before in a previous uh, presentation when we were talking about is there anything you can trust? And we were talking about the trustworthiness of the Bible. The Bible is the most attested to ancient documents in the world. There are thousands of ancient copies of the New Testament. Why is that? Because it was regarded as the most important document by those who wrote it and copied it out and passed it on to others. It was not regarded as a great work of man, but rather the word of God. It was regarded as the most important material that you could hope to possess. And so uh, that's why we have thousands of ancient copies of it. And so imagine this. Paul is writing. He's basically saying something along the lines of, There were over 500 people who saw Jesus at once after the resurrection. Most of them are still alive. If you don't believe me, go and talk to them. Now, if Paul was actually making this up, who's going to be taking him seriously? How is this book going to achieve credibility, the New Testament? Who's going to regard it as authoritative if Paul is in fact making this up and there are no other witnesses? Where where are these 500? Imagine that 500 people did collude with each other and decided to say something that wasn't true. If one of these um, sceptics came to them and asked them what actually happened and then compared their accounts, I'm sure there'd be 500 different accounts. If it wasn't, If it wasn't true, but if it was true then their accounts would be substantially the same, wouldn't it? Well, here's the thing. You see, if it, you could make this case for the, 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 the apostles alone, the 11 remaining apostles, even if you didn't count the 500. Uh, a lot of people will die for something they believe to be true. Sometimes we uh, read stories of suicide bombers who believe a certain thing is true and they believe it's worth dying for. Okay. But what you don't have is you don't have people dying for something that they know is a lie. Who is going to give their life, uh, not just a life, give their life in the instance, but actually put themselves out, go through hardship, go through poverty, giving away their worldly goods, traveling to far distant lands in order to share a dangerous message, a message that Jesus had died, was buried, and rose again. He was the Son of God. He can offer you eternal life. By sharing that message, they put their lives at risk. They were in prison. They were beaten. They were persecuted. And all except for John, died an early death. And they died because they shared the gospel. So the psychology around the gospels is impeccable, really. It really doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense for them to get together and say, let's make up this story, let's spread this story, we're going to spend our entire life spreading this story even though we know it's not true. These people either did really see Jesus in the flesh, alive, after the resurrection, they saw him with their eyes, they heard him with their ears, they touched him with their hands, they gave him food to eat. John himself makes this point if you read the first letter of John to the church. In chapter 1 of 1 John, He makes uh, a very plain statement. He says, we have seen, we have heard, we have touched. 
we are talking about something we have really experienced. This is not something, you know, a pie in the sky by and by. This is reality. This is evidence. Evidence. And so these are eyewitnesses who were recalling that they really did see Jesus alive after the resurrection. And Paul's recalling here that there are 500 of them, most of which are alive 25 years later. And if you don't believe Paul, you can go and talk to those eyewitnesses. Now, now that's a pretty serious claim to make. If, absolutely. If it's not true. I mean, that would blow, his, as you said before, it would blow his credibility, wouldn't it? You and I, if we are eyewitnesses to a world-changing event, let's suppose you and I happen to be in New York City in um, September 11, 2001, and we, from a distance, saw those buildings being hit, we saw those buildings fall. We would talk to people about that as eyewitnesses. And no amount of pressure from people is going to cause us to say, no, I wasn't there, or no, it didn't happen. Because we saw it, we can't deny it. And this was a life-changing event for those people. You can imagine, to see somebody alive who had been dead, who was buried, but not just anybody. This was somebody who made claims to divinity. He said he was the son of God. He, sa- he claimed that not only would he die, be buried and rise from the dead, but he can offer you and I a resurrection from the dead. And I think this is absolutely crucial. It's not just that somebody died, it's that Jesus died, and he actually is offering us an opportunity to have a life beyond this one. We've run out of time today, but I'm just wondering whether you would close with uh, a prayer and then we'll look at uh, what we're going to talk about next week. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we are so glad to be able to review again some of the evidence uh, from your word, from extra-biblical sources, from history, that helps us to understand the factual nature of the resurrection. Help us to put our trust in you, that we may benefit from that resurrection also. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Peter, thanks for the discussion today. I really look forward to talking with you next week because we're going to be looking at your own personal story but your journey from unbelief to belief in the United Kingdom. Don't forget to join us next time. Bye for now, and God bless you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 